0: Thank you for joining us for
1: another podcast from the Commonwealth Club.
2: My name is Winston Ashby. I'm the executive director and founder of the Positive Alternative Recreation Team Building Impact Program. And I am here with some giants. And the giants that I'm here with are going to speak up about COVID-19. And they're going to speak up about schools from their own lips, from their own Parts from their own emotions. I remember it was in March and schools have said, hey, we're going to shut down for a couple of weeks and then we're going to come right back after school break. And now we are in August. Some kids did not graduate on a stage. Some kids did not promote with their family, being able to recognize and celebrate them. And we are asking them to accept a new normal. So here to talk with me about what that new normal looks like from their own perspective is Vibova. Vaibhava, please tell us your name, your age, school, and why you're here today.
0: Hello, everyone. My name is Vaibhava Rajesh, and I'd just like to thank Winston for introducing me. And I'd like to thank everyone that's here. Watching this program means a lot to me. And I am a freshman at Evergreen Valley High School in San Jose, and I'm happy to be with you all today. Thank you for the opportunity to speak at this event. Something I do in my community is engage and participate in speech and debate and leadership opportunities that promote youth voices, which is something that we'll be doing today. I believe it is very important for adults and youth to come together and create an engaging conversation that helps us inform ourselves about the experiences of others and current events. I'm so glad that I have a voice today to speak up about important issues and topics and things that we'll be covering.
2: All right. Well, thank you for being here. And to my other side is Victoria. Victoria, tell us about yourself, uh, give us your age, grade, school, and why you're here.
3: Hello, everybody. My name is Victoria Twee V. McDowell. I am 16 years old, and I am a current senior at Los Gatos High School. Fortunately, I have had the opportunity to be very involved in the community by volunteering and performing as a singer for various nonprofits and events to help raise money for the homeless, the elderly, orphans, and the underserved all around the world. I'm so happy and excited to be a part of this program to raise awareness and address issues going on in our community today. Thank you so much for having me, and I hope that you enjoy the rest of the program. I would like to welcome Dr. Dewan for joining us today as
0: one of our panelists. Dr. Dewan is the Santa Clara County Superintendent of Schools and has over 27 years of experience in education. Dr. Dewan advocates for many important issues and has led many important initiatives, such as the Early Learning Advocacy Work We are so thankful to have her tonight and appreciate the time that she has donated to us in order to have these important discussions.
2: Thank you for being here with us.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Next, I would like to introduce Dr. Jeff, who is our second panelist this evening. Dr. Jeff is an associate professor of Raza Studies, Education, Administration, and Interdisciplinary Studies at San Francisco State University. Prior to this, Dr. Jeff has worked as a coach and taught in Oakland for almost a decade. Dr. Jeff continues to be very involved in schools and closely works with schools all over the community. We are so thankful to have you, Dr. Jeff, in our program today and look forward to talk to you about all of the different topics that we'd like to cover.
2: Thank you, Dr. Jeff. Thank you for inviting me. It's an honor. And so we have some strong allies from the Santa Clara County Office of Education, San Francisco State University, and through their work and their experience and their, their history, they've, they've had uh, a strong background. So I'm going to be quiet, <laughs> and I'm going to let Victoria begin by asking the first question.
3: So my first question is for Dr. Dewan. Dr. Dewan, in an interview for Bay Area Women Magazine, you said that, as a teacher, I thought it was important to create the conditions in the classroom for active learning and collaboration. Students demonstrate their knowledge and are most engaged with hands-on learning, lessons, and projects. In a group call that I attended with three other high school students at neighboring schools, one student made a comment saying that they are experiencing a lack of drive to attend these online classes since we won't have the full interactive experience that we get in our classrooms. How do you feel about the remote learning that students are currently adapting to, and how do you think that will affect the students' learning based on the interactive way of learning that you say is best for students?
4: I just want to thank you all again for inviting me tonight and just share how humbled I am to uh, be here speaking during this time and in this context. Uh, Yes, I do really highly value hands-on learning and collaboration, and especially when young people can co-create the curriculum, the lessons, um, the activities that they may be doing to demonstrate their understanding of the standards so I think um, you know the situation with distance learning is something that's put upon us, um, and it really challenges us to be more creative and to think about how these tech tools can both facilitate learning, um, but also how they can have their proper place during the school day and, and in our learning. So while distance learning um, is going to be involving online lessons and Zoom and maybe WebEx and other platforms, time throughout the day should be dedicated uh, to other types of activities. And that could be things such as expression through the arts, Um, it could be the design of projects, Um, maybe rather than the teacher delivering a lot of the lesson and content, finding ways that students can can present in these new platforms and in these activities. I also think that there's a lot of opportunity to balance out the screen time with other kinds of learning. that could be hands-on learning kits, um, science activities, and experiments. And schools can provide those types of resources uh, to students, and also students can uh, often find some ways to be creative and discover um, things in their own environment. And I think another way that we we need to ensure that we're balancing uh, this um, time with the screen and time away from the classroom is with outdoor activities and reconnecting Uh, to our neighborhood, to our backyards or community um, places where young people can exercise and and really step away from the computer and step away from the screen. And I think all of those things together can help balance out the impacts of distance learning, still allowing that positive um, connection that can occur, but not letting it overwhelm the delivery of instruction in a way uh, that becomes negative and harmful.
3: Yes, I completely agree. To follow up that question, I wanted to ask how do you think schools can confirm that students have support at home to do these assignments and do the homework?
4: No, I was thinking about that today. And um, while I'm not a student anymore and I'm not in school, I was thinking back to when I was a student. And if I were in the situation that Um, families are facing today, how challenging it would be for our family, you know, with brothers and sisters at home and, you know, um, all kinds of other um, things that we have to share on a regular basis to try to share during a time when we're trying to learn as well uh, can be very challenging. And so I think some of the ways to do that, um, schools can make connections uh, with families via email, cell phone, um, teleconference, um, having some hotlines and ways that families can alert the school or school principal or teacher. I think it's really important for the teacher to have a connection to the family um, so that there's um, a lot of awareness about um, the contacts that we're all experiencing uh, together. And I also um, really think youth voice is important and for children to know um, who the trusted adults are in their school and school campus, even though we're not there physically, um, we are still there. And so really um, taking advantage of those connections with trusted uh, personnel on school campus, whether that's the teacher, a paraprofessional, the school principal, a counselor, or someone else.
3: My next question is to Dr. Jeff Duncan. So Dr. Jeff, in an interview for the New York Times, you said, we are so deeply embedded in the factors that impinge on a school without an analysis of the particular context. What is the political economy? What is the neighborhood structure? I read in the interview that you work in Oakland, where the Black Panthers started. You also stated that there is something about being a youth in Oakland that makes you different from those who demographically mirror you. As an African-American at a primarily Caucasian school, I have definitely been told by my African-American friends that I know from Oakland and other surrounding cities that I have been quote-unquote whitewashed and act a certain way because of the neighborhood that I grew up in how do you think students can feel more comfortable in the environment that they are placed in?
1: It's a great question. And I think that it's a timely question for the condition that that this nation is in right now. Um, What what that young person is reflecting back um, is the the blowback of white supremacy. And um, what it means to be um, a black person, an indigenous person, a person of color in this society um, and constantly having uh, your identity challenged, your identity um, devalued, um, questioned, um, and, and to be in a sort of perpetual state of having to, you know, just as the young brother said in his video of, of sort of managing all these um, emotions um, from, you know, rage to sadness to disconnectedness. Um, this, is, this is endemic. Of the kind of ether that we—not that we're just sucking in right now—I think people have sort of lasered in on this in some ways right now. But you know, for for people of color in this nation, like we we've been in pandemic. Um, you know, we have been experiencing the, the the impacts of radicalized inequality, and, and and suddenly, like the the rest of the nation is is experiencing what we've been talking about for you know, as the brother said, for three hundred plus years. So. Um, the question for me is is whether or not like is this the wake-up call? And is this the time when this nation finally decides to repurpose public schools and to ask itself some, some real questions about wh- what are we doing here? I mean, what what are we doing when we take children away from their families? for eight hours a day for 13 consecutive years and you've got young brothers and sisters that are in high school wondering about whether or not it their identity is okay um that to me that that's that's an indictment of a whole lot of things but in particular it's an indictment of the pedagogy and curriculum that we've been using in our schools under the auspices that we care about young people and we're promoting this you know this future for them and and, you know, frankly, none of the data bears that out, particularly for people of color. And so, you know, I feel like in, in if, if not in this moment, when we are in a double global health pandemic, if this is not the moment when schools recenter themselves and understand that the primary purpose of schools in this nation should be youth wellness, and that the pathway to youth wellness means that schools are going to have to pull back from relationships with Pearson and Hope Mifflin and Business as Usual questioning everything down to what we call standards mm-hmm. and and reimagining that at the center of the project needs to be the wellness of children. And we measure what matters. You know, that is the coin of the realm in schools. And so when schools tell me that they care about the wellness of young people, the first thing I ask them is, Well, how do you measure that? And if your first measurement of that is test scores, GPA, college going, you know, uh, college and career pathways, those sorts of things, then that, that I'm questioning your moral compass. Because it's not that those things aren't important. I mean, what a hypocrite I would be sitting here with my PhD saying that those things didn't matter. Of course they matter. But what we know in the research and what we know in the time-honored practice and what we know from the teachings of our ancestors is that those things that I just named off are lagging indicators. And so the real question that we should be focusing on right now is what are the leading indicators of student engagement, student achievement, and student wellness? And those are the things that we can measure around well being. And if those become the driving metrics of schools, then a lot of the things that we've been chasing. The, the lag indicators around engagement, around attendance, around uh, uh, math, reading, writing, those things are going to come along. And the truth of the matter is that the only place that we're debating this right now is inside of the field of education and amongst ideologues. In the research community, whether you're talking about the medical field, psychology, social epidemiology, public health, um, neuroscience, there's no debate about that. And the question is, is can schools capitalize on this moment to really make a hard pivot to focus on wellness and to focus on on things like ethnic studies. If this brother had had ethnic studies from the time that he was, or or she, um, was in kindergarten, that question would have been very different. And their ability to respond to that question from their white classmates would have been very different.
3: Um, I wanted to ask Dr. Jeff could you elaborate on your statement about how being a youth in a specific area makes you different from those who demographically mirror you?
1: Sure. So what, what I'm talking about there is, is the reality that, 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 that culture um, in, you know, in, in the, the context, particularly of schools, um, as schools have sort of scrambled to um, repair their relationships with communities of color and poor and working class communities, um, they've taken on right, this, this idea that they want to be you know, culturally responsive. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and the problem is, is that, that schools did not spend a lot of time actually trying to understand what culture is and what it means. And h- had that happened, then th- there would have been clarity about the fact that, that, that culture is not a proxy for race. I mean, race is a component of culture but so is gender, so is sexual identity, so is language, um, so is age, you know, like the culture that you two have right now as high school students is different than the culture that my seven-year-old sons have, and 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 yet like, you're, you're both considered youth, right? So um, th- there's a, a whole host of things that go into making up culture, and to be culturally responsive means that that a school has to be responding to all of those elements. They can't essentialize it and say, oh, well, you're a black kid. And, and, you know, I, I taught in East Oakland for, you know, 25 years, and I was really good with black kids there. And, and now I'm in San Antonio, Texas, and you're a black kid. And so I'm just going to like it over the stuff that I did in East Oakland. It, it doesn't work that way. Like your zip code is also part of your culture. And so the, the term that, that, that our organization has really been trying to support schools to utilize is the, the concept of community responsiveness, mm-hmm. because to be community responsive, you have to be culturally responsive. But when you begin thinking about pedagogy and curriculum and assessment and relationships, you have to start where you stand, okay? And, and understanding that particular community and the unique and particular history of the community that has led us to this particular place. And when you have that kind of historical trajectory informing, then, you know, so, so what the Black Panthers, to sort of bring up what you were saying earlier, what the Black Panthers might mean for a young person in Oakland is going to be different than what the Black Panthers might mean for a young person in, say, Iowa. Are the Black Panthers important to be studied in both of those places? Absolutely. but. It has to be in relationship to the context. That has to be the starting point that begins to then open up the window for young people to begin to explore other contexts. So you, you know, this goes all the way back to Dewey at the turn of the 20th century when he talked about the child and the curriculum. This is not a particularly new idea. We've just largely ignored it right, in an effort to build out what 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 we've what we've essentially tried to call rigor, but it's a false rigor, right? True rigor begins with the young person and the material conditions and the history that has shaped those, and then begins to think about what does it mean to have a meaningful curriculum and pedagogy in that context. Mm
3: -hmm. Wow, that was really powerful. And I also wanted to say um, I really connect with that because we learned in class when we were looking at our textbooks, they also included an excerpt from a Texas textbook And we saw the complete difference where they would take out certain sentences just because those students wouldn't want to hear about that or they would be too sensitive to those certain things. And I thought that was just so interesting when they told us over here in California that the kids in Texas just weren't learning the same things. So that was really powerful. Thank you. Thank you to the both of you for answering my questions. All right. So these next two questions are open for either of the panelists. And
0: back and forth can go ahead and start. So the third question that we have this evening is in order to kind of have a you know, a wonderful classroom environment, we need to make sure that students are being engaged in citizenry and being patriotic and civics and all of those things where we are being educated on all of these different topics and ethnics and all of this, all of these different things. So how would we bring those citizenry and how would we bring those aspects to schools so that we can establish democracy in schools and make sure that we are learning the core values of our country and practicing those kind of things, how would you think would be the best way to incorporate those in our schools?
1: Yeah, it, it, it's a good question. I, I think that, you know, I'll return to some of my earlier statements about, I, I think ethnic studies is a great starting place for us to, to really begin to engage young people critically in the, the historical inequities um, and the racialized inequities that are, that are plaguing and, and, and literally tearing at the basic fabric of our society right now. Uh, we, we've got to support young people um, and, and, and particularly this this next generation of young people to be much more conversant in that history um, and to really envision what it would actually mean to move from the rhetoric of a pluralistic multiracial democracy to the reality of a pluralistic multiracial democracy. But but I, I don't see that happening as, as simply a, a sort of like a curricular intervention or a programmatic in, intervention you know, I, I'll repeat what I said earlier, that we, we've we got to center wellness as the primary project of public schools in, in this country. And so as a way to kind of illuminate this a little bit for our conversation, I'm, I'm going to share a few slides that I think will, could be some good resources, both for this conversation and, and for folks that are, that are watching to, to think about how to take this, you know, kind of like 30,000 foot concept of wellness, like who's against wellness, you know, like who's going to vote against, like, yeah, you know, but but that's dangerous, right? Like we, our, our communities have got to be self-determining, particularly communities of color and communities in poverty. The most vulnerable and the most wounded communities have got to have the, the access, power, and privilege to be able to define what wellness actually means. Otherwise, they'll have wellness done to them. And that's not wellness, right? That That's an age-old right project that has created the lack of wellness. So let me share my screen here. Um, and so... Um, This is a definition that our organization, um, Community Responsive Education, uh, developed in partnership for over years with a whole host of folks. Okay, so I don't want anybody to think that this is our definition. Um, You know, this this happened through collaborations with um, some of the leading um, thinkers and researchers, um, some incredible uh, indigenous healers, young people, families, um, all came together to really help us think about what would it mean for us to be self-determining in the ways in which we talk about wellness. Um, And so what what that collective came up with is is a definition that reads, wellness is the harmonizing of mind, body, emotion, and spirit. It is cultivated and sustained through healthy relationships Mm -hmm. that are responsive to the lived experiences and the historical and material conditions that shape them. Community responsive wellness strengthens the sacred link between self-actualization and community community actualization in three domains. And so the places where we really um, work with schools um, and educators to to press around wellness is in these three domains. The inner self, uh, interpersonal. So the inner self is it's got to start with young people. Young people have to love themselves for who they are. They have to know their value. They have to value the ancestors that they came from. They have to value the beauty of their own block. And when that happens, right, then then they're much better prepared to engage in interpersonal wellness, which is the kinds of relationships that they shape up with their peers, with their family, with their teachers, and with the broader society. And what is often left out of that conversation um, is the third one, which is interconnectedness, which is really about connecting to the larger ecosystem, the earth, right, trees, animals, all of the, the systems that allow us to breathe and thrive, okay? So, Um, Inner self is a strong sense of culture, identity, and agency, right? And there is tons of evidence to suggest that ethnic studies is the best thing going out there, particularly for the most vulnerable and the most wounded children to build this sense of inner self. I would argue that what the research also suggests is that when when white children are exposed to ethnic studies, they also develop a deeper sense of of self-love. The second, interpersonal, is a rootedness and commitment to showing empathy toward family, community, and peers. And the key word there for us is empathy, which which is about transitioning from sympathy. Sympathy and empathy are not the same things. Empathy literally creates a biochemical reaction in your body and your brain because you're connecting to folks. And empathy is about your suffering is my suffering. If we want an engaged, critical, uh, civic, minded population, we have got to develop empathy in our young people. And in order for that to happen, people ha- young people have to love themselves and they have to be able to connect to others through that love of themselves. And the third piece is interconnectedness, which is a positive interrelatedness to ancestors, place, land, and the natural world. This grows ecosystems where people and communities experience place, power, purpose, awareness, resilience, empathy, hope, love, and joy. Those That list at the end, that is the work that we're doing with schools to figure out how do you actually measure those things? Because everything in the research clearly suggests that when young people are moving the meter on those things at the bottom, that the other things that schools are currently tracking tend to take care of themselves.
2: Mm, Yeah.
0: I think that's very powerful, and I think something that's just been a prevalent problem in our society is the lack of empathy that we have, and I think that ethnic studies is definitely something that being implemented would benefit everyone and benefit all students. Now, as my experience as an Indian American, I definitely have experienced similar experiences as to Victoria has experienced, where it feels like I don't belong in a certain category or we are feeling like we are being categorized just based on a race. And ethnic studies, like I said before, is something that my district is trying to implement. And so we were actually doing a project last year when I was in eighth grade, where we were able to pick any topic we found was interesting to us and present it and talk about why this was interesting and why this is a prevalent issue. And some of the students that um, were doing that project actually chose to present about why they felt ethnic studies was unnecessary in our daily lives and that it shouldn't be something that we should include. And I find that very um, interesting and kind of showing why this is basically the root problem about how students really don't understand that and bringing ethnic studies would help that understanding. And no matter where we're going to travel, we need to understand people around us and ethnic studies will definitely help make that happen. And so as a superintendent, observing and working closely with many different schools, could Dr. Duan respond to how we can implement ethnic studies in the systems to allow us to incorporate these principles of democracy and main
4: principles that are very important to our country? Uh, we certainly... Um high see and value the role of ethnic studies and um, our office has made a lot of investments in the work of ethnic studies, supporting uh, projects and training and um, supporting teachers and having the capacity and skills to integrate ethnic studies through the K-12 uh, school system. So one of my thoughts around around it is how important ethnic studies can be in fostering curiosity and developing perspective and creating a way for uh, dialogue uh, to occur. I also really value the importance of um, shifting our perspective and the way that we think about history or the way that we traditionally have taught history or learned it, um, and maybe thinking about it less about historical figures and people or, and maybe even events and focusing more on perspective and, Uh, critical thinking and developing the skills um, with each other to have civil discourse and to know how to challenge perspectives and beliefs and and really um, anchor ourselves more in the values and principles that we share that could be a part of our democracy. Um, I also really think civic engagement is something that um, begins when we're young. It begins when we're children. It begins when um, we are in community with family or in our neighborhood. And civic engagement can look like things when we're older, such as voting. It can look like uh, public service and elected office, but it can also look like participating in problem-solving in our community and raising awareness about challenges that we're facing and helping to uh, develop uh, teams and collaboration around addressing those challenges and problems. I think the role of a county office in this work is, one, conceptual, um, how we Uh, raise up the ideas and the concepts and create the space for those in the education field, parents, elected officials, and others to learn about it. I think the other um, thing that's important for county offices to do in support of our districts um, and schools is training, training for teachers. But I think thirdly, it's really important that we're creating these avenues for youth and for youth voice. And many of the ways that our office has done that um, is to create events where We're um, exposing young people to these opportunities to engage civically, serving on panels, similar to what you're all doing here today. Um, Also for uh, young people to learn different ways of writing, uh, different ways of uh, pitching their ideas and uh, their concerns and uh, those types of um, ways of fostering creativity and curiosity, but empowerment with tools Is the way in which we can, I think, transform our communities, um, including our school communities. And I I would just also add that, you know, ethnic studies um, is both a curriculum, you know, in in a course, um, it can be, but it can also be something that is uh, integrated and a part of the way that we learn our lessons uh, throughout schooling. And it doesn't have to be relegated to a particular grade level or particular credit earning course, it is something that can be woven into the fabric of our K-12 system.
0: I think that's a wonderful point, and I'm currently taking ethnic studies as my elective course, so I can't wait to open my curiosity and just better myself as a person understanding all these different perspectives, and I really like how we are doing a lot right now to include these important aspects in our schooling systems, and I think that that will come with a lot of benefits Now, following that question, I think, you know, with all of the stuff going on in COVID-19 and all of the uncertainty that's happening, um, not only just for the way things are going to run, but the way students are feeling and those long-term goals that students have been working towards, what are the resources that students can look towards to help determine goals and aspirations for the future? So seniors that are going into college or applying for colleges. And because of the way COVID-19 came in, Our goals have been affected, so how can students deal with this uncertainty during COVID-19? And um, Dr. Jeff and Dr. Dewan can go ahead and go back and forth and answer this question.
4: Well, I'd be happy to start on that since we recognize that all the traditional ways that we thought about progressing from high school into college and career were upended when the tests got canceled and we weren't sure how to do grading and some of the uh, other types of mentor mentoring and internships and things that would have happened in person didn't happen in the way that we expected. Um, I think it's um, you know that assessment around our goals and our values and what we're looking to to do is something that young people are doing and adults are doing as well. Um, and I think as far as setting goals, it's it is important to set goals um, thinking about the short term and as well as the long term and not being so um, hard on ourselves that we have to know the exact next step or the ne- exact next answer, um, because there is still going to be a lot of uncertainty as, as our community, our country wrestles with COVID 19. That being said, I've really recognized that our colleges and universities are also challenged and reimagining the ways in which they engage with high school students and that recruitment towards college. And I also think that there are new ways of thinking about our routines and um, the um, aspirations that we may set. Um, I share in what uh, Dr. Jeff was talking about early with the focus on wellness. And I also think that focus uh, in our goals individually and collectively around wellness is important um, and can help us with um, whatever may happen post COVID-19. But I also think that, um, taking a recognition of what can be done during this time. Um, so maybe it doesn't look the exact same way that we thought it could, but there are many ways in which we can contribute to solution seeking. Um, we can still have internships. We can still um, you know, serve our community, for example, and we can still really dig deep into our studies and our self-growth So I think that colleges and universities are already talking about that, how they're going to look at the whole child, the whole person, this whole young, um, young adult experience that is happening during COVID, and not putting so much uh, emphasis and weight on um, abstract things such as an SAT score or an ACT score. So you know, it's not that those things aren't potentially valuable in some settings. But we recognize from a values place that there are many other things that make up who we are and make up our ability to be successful.
1: Well, first of all, I, I agree with a, a lot of what was just said. Um, but but I think that what what I would add is is that um, I, I wouldn't presume to know. Um, that I, I would actually start by asking young people in my community, right? Like, wh- I mean, what a great way to start your class, right? Is like, and I don't care whether you're talking about kindergarten or or you know senior high school, right? I think there's. I feel like a little bit of this discussion has really, um, and I think is the nature of like we, you know, y'all are in high school, but I, like I have twin seven-year-old boys, right? So you know, a lot of my wonderings about like what does this look like for a second grader, you know, um, and and but in in with respect to this question, I think the starting point really should be the same, which is, you know, start by asking the young people in your class, like, what are your aspirations? You know, what do you want to accomplish this year? Right? Can can we have a more dynamic way to develop? a a curriculum and a syllabus that's really driven by um, the young people's interest. I mean, now is the time when we can really innovate in schools, because what else are we going to do? Like, we cannot do business as usual right now. So I think really this that's why I I was so honored to come into this space and be like, yes, yes, let, let the young people start asking us questions. Let the young people start framing the debate that we need to have. Um, and so, you know, I think that, that, that you start there, right? And you really explore what is it that young people feel like they want to accomplish. And then you just become, you know, in some ways, as a teacher, like the best teachers that I'm around, they're, they're glorified gophers. Like they're just running around getting resources for young people to pursue and chase down their their wildest dreams. And they're putting some structure to it and some support to it. But, but I think that, that, you know, now is a great opportunity to do that. The, the thing that the advice I would give to young people is one thing that I think you can do. Um, is that you can start thinking about which of your classmates need you. And, you know, I have to watch all these, like, crazy commercials because my, my seven-year-olds I- insist that they get, you know, 40 minutes of screen time every night. Um, and so I'm watching, you know, uh, 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 Mirror the Royal Detective and Hero Elementary. And if y'all don't know about that, you know, you got to get, get gamed up on. Those are some, like, amazing shows. But they have these commercials that run the same commercial over and over and over again. And, and one of them that I really like is this commercial where um, it's basically about, like, there's these two, you know, adolescents that are sitting on a couch together, and one of them is trying to figure out how to ask their homie how they're doing. And it's super awkward, right? And the, the, the sort of, like, the message of the commercial is just ask. just ask. It doesn't matter how you ask, right? Just show up. Just be there. And so I think that that's one of the, one of the best things that young people can do and can aspire to do around empathy like think about which of your classmates need a check-in y'all know you know who who your homies are and the young people in your school that are the most vulnerable and you're mobile you're super dexterous you know using your devices and also you know like on foot going wherever you're going i would love to see young people activate around taking care of each other As a part of our pedagogy and curriculum and in the best classrooms that I've been in pre-COVID, that already happened. That was normed. It really felt like a community. And folks were, were knowing if somebody was coming in hurting, then the class would rally around that young person and support them. And the result of that was that the learning got deeper because it was bigger than the, the, right, it was bigger than the curriculum. It was bigger than the test score. It was bigger than the essay. It was about us. And and in the, the the dopest classrooms that I've been in, that the the climate and the culture is, it's all of us or none of us. Nobody in here is failing. Nobody in here is getting left behind. Everybody's going to be well. And unfortunately, that's not the norm. But this is a moment where it it it, it could become more normal. And certainly it's a mantle that young people could take up with each other. Wow.
4: I I would just add to that too, that, you know, this, this is a big, huge experiment and change, like just a significant amount of change and the kinds of things that we thought we could count on that, you know, just don't exist in the same way that they did before. And we don't know when they may come back. And so a lot of this the maybe sadness or social isolation and, and fear that we're experiencing is directly related to that change. And a lot of it is to be expected. And so some of the resource um, is the resource that we have within each other, within ourselves, um, to engage in self-care and to practice mindfulness and to journal and to reach out to others to break that sense of isolation. And so I, I really think that there's this opportunity to um, create space to acknowledge how the co- how COVID 19 is impacting us, um, and then also to create that path for um, managing it, learning to live um, with these changes, and ex- learning how to express ourselves in a way that promotes the wellness that we want for each other.
2: I to um, chime in something. Um... And this is just a recap of what I'm hearing you say. And um, I implore you, if you're, if you're at home looking at this, uh, ask some questions. A few of you have already asked questions, which we'll begin to um, share that. So it's, it's a community discussion. Um, but there was something that you said, Dr. Duan, when you mentioned internships, summer activities, colleges visiting high school students or high or school or kids visiting colleges, being able to have that mindset of changing the game. It doesn't, okay, just the way we used to do it, now it has to change. And Dr. Jeff, you had mentioned allowing young people to check in on each other, right? Allowing young people to say, okay, how how are we doing today? Being able to have that as part of the the curriculum and the standards of, of class. That's, that's, what, that's the message that I got from both of you. Dr. Dewan, can I ask you, um, how can we help schools to have and shift to this type of mindset in Santa Clara County?
4: I think that we can help um, schools by expressing to them what we need um, and also taking advantage of the things and the opportunities that um, are presented. A lot of our schools did offer some summer, uh, summer experiences, whether that was athletic conditioning. Um, some of them had uh, in-person uh, camps, um, summer camps. I know our office, for example, we operated our Wild and West uh, outdoor experience uh, camps. And so, you know, I, I think that there is more opportunity and more things available um, through our schools than perhaps um, we're all truly aware of. Um, I also think that it isn't just schools, you know, it, it really is community, community centers, cities, um, our our clinics, you know, we have a lot of partners in community um, that we can reach out to to break that sense of of um, social isolation. Um, I also know that a lot of our um, programs did transform themselves into virtual experiences, and so young people did have some opportunities for internships that were online or in some other way. Um, offered virtual shadowing or um, virtual experiences. Um, And then I think too, um, you know, we mentioned earlier about the arts, really keeping a focus on expression and uh, taking advantage of these opportunities that might present themselves for uh, singing and for expression through painting and writing and poetry, um, vocal expressions, uh, debate, all of those types of opportunities, I think are really key during this time as well.
1: Okay. Like, I want I want to just double down on that real quick. Sure. It, it, one thing that you said in particular that I think we haven't really touched on is so important, which is this can't all land on schools. This can't all land on teachers. I mean, I mean, we we, we already are, are a nation that that radically underfunds, right? Its public education system, um, and 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 the the, the the total negligence on the part of the federal government to get support to the the most needy families right now, like where do you think all that's going to fall? Where where do you think the the lack of a support bill getting signed off on is going to fall now that we're back in school? It's going to fall on teachers. It's going to fall on school leaders. And 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 what you said is so important that we've, for too long, we've looked to schools to fix every social ill that we've created and that we keep investing in, right? Maintaining. Mm -hmm. And so- I think schools have a really significant role to play, but, but you know the, the um, government, business, right? Community needs to step up and really support schools right now because all of it is falling on us. And, and frankly, we are dealing with the pandemic just like everybody else. So now we're dealing with our pandemic and we're asked to hold all the suffering of all these young people that are also right, dealing with this radicalized inequality in the shape of a double pandemic. We have to do better, and, okay. and, and it is totally unfair to keep asking schools
2: to do more with less. Okay, so I, I would love to have a wonderful conversation with you about that. But uh, what I'm gonna do is, Dr. Jeff, is I am going to uh, take heed to what you said about asking the kids and so I'm going to ask Vibeva first, Viva, how are you coping during COVID-19?
0: Um, I want to say that COVID-19 has changed some of the biggest factors that I have basically looked to my life as normal mm-hmm. and all the things I can rely on. And it has changed the way I feel towards school, the way I feel towards opening a laptop and getting on a Zoom meeting and considering that my first day of high school. And it's... Definitely something that I feel like I've just kind of had to bottle up and deal with and cope with. And just seeing all of these different problems, you know, brought to my attention and all of these very important social and educational issues that we are using this wonderful time to educate ourselves about. I think it's something that's super overwhelming for me as a 14-year-old. And I definitely say teenagers my age feel the same way.
2: So you feel, I heard the word overwhelm and in getting ready to prepare for something new is that okay and then so i'm going to ask victoria the same question
3: i feel very similar to how vibava feels Mm -hmm. um i think it would only be a little different just because i'm getting ready to go on to college and um a lot of our resources were taken away due to covid19 such as taking our sat act so i think that adds a lot more stress onto our backs and more um I feel like we don't really have a place to talk about it. We don't have a place to just explain how we feel and we aren't given time to process what we're feeling. And so I think we all as seniors need more help with understanding what's truly going on so that we can be prepared for college because especially since our senior year is what we look forward to, even going back all the way to elementary school, I think it's really tough to watch it go by. Um even though it just started today for me, I know that it's going to go by really quickly and it's not going to be the same as it, as I was expecting it to be. So that's kind of disappointing for me personally.
2: Okay. So you, you mentioned that, Hey, you you need some more help preparing to navigate through this. Right. And, um, it's already the first day of school or you, you know, and, and, and and now you have to process all these things, all the, the help that, that you need and who is going to help you. Um, all right, so thank you, both of you, for sharing that. And then I am going to um, take a question from Grayson. Grayson, we hear you out there. We hear you. And uh, I'm going to ask uh, the question, which was directed to the students, uh, for you to answer those questions. And then, uh, Dr. Dewan and Dr. Jeff, if you want to chime in afterwards, we definitely appreciate and We want to hear from you as well. Okay. So the question is from Grayson. Yeah, we hear you out there. How do you feel COVID-19 was handled in the United States?
0: Um, (laughs) So I'd like to go ahead and start, if that's okay, with Victoria. For sure. Sure. And I'd like to say that the way it was handled, just first of all, I want to start with social distancing because that was the first way we were preparing into it.
2: All right. Talk about you. Talk about you. How do you feel? All right. For me,
0: um, I definitely want to say it was so um, sudden, but at the same time, just I feel like the way it was handled and the way it was explained and the way we were educated about it, was so unorganized and frankly I still don't know when am I going back to school and it's so uncertain the amount of uncertainty that COVID-19 has brought us and the way it was handled how social distancing started how we were all basically told oh we'd come back to school after two weeks and it's August we're going into our senior years we're going into our freshman years and we still don't know when is this going to end. When are we going to, you know, follow social distancing? And when are our government officials going to step up to how other countries are handling it and see them as examples of ways that we need to take care of the situation better, educationally, emotionally, socially, and in all aspects. So that's the way I feel it could be. It was handled,
3: and we definitely need to step up and handle this better.
2: Thank you, Vibraman. Thank you.
3: I completely agree with you. I think that the U.S. government definitely did not handle it well enough, and I wish that they could just give us more information, not only for youth, but just everybody in general. And I think, as Vibava said, it's very unorganized, and they continue to reopen and then close back because cases go back up. And I think if you want to eliminate this so that we can finally actually go back to normal, I think you need to be stricter with what we're doing so that we can definitely have it not long, it last as long as it's going to. And right now, we honestly all have no clue how long this is going to last, what's going to happen in the future. And I think that's just really scary for us, especially as youth, because we have to attend school and we have so many other things to worry about right now. And so I just wish we could have more information and it could be more organized.
2: All right. I'm going to get to you, you two in just a second. I'm going to pitch this question to you again. How was covid nineteen handled I, I want you to talk from the mindset of you being a junior in high school, so your school your um, your your teachers your your entire environment at school the The answer that you're going to give is going to also help this young person who is now a freshman in high school right right so go ahead
3: so um I think that for the end of my junior year, it was definitely very sudden.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, I think that my school handled it pretty well because they continued to follow up, ask us questions, ask if we're okay. They were very, um, they were always asking us about our mental health, making sure that we're okay. We have the resources that we need at home. And unfortunately, when I was on the call with three other high school students, I was hearing that they weren't getting that support from their school and they weren't being asked about their mental health and how they're dealing with everything. And so I'm just very disappointed that other schools don't have the opportunity and these students don't have the support that they need, not only for their mental health, but just for their education in general.
2: Right. So kids from other schools had a different experience than yours and you, you heard and you felt the anxiety... Um, when you were communicating to them, yes. Uh, we'll, we'll start with Dr. Jeff. Uh,
1: <laughs> what a great question! Um,
2: <laughs> it's embarrassing,
1: yeah. How, how this was handled, uh, and it's inexcusable. Um, you know, a total lack of leadership, and to you know, for the for, for the federal government to kick it back to states as a as a state's issue is just it, it's absurd. And it, it, it's childish and it's cowardly. And, it, and I'm not saying that the federal government needed to come out with you know some like draconian you know strict set of expectations that everybody had to follow. But damn, could you have a plan? Just just <laughs> just a basic plan, okay? About like we're we're going for masks, social distancing, and 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 we're gonna flood you know resources into. Um, the the, the communities and the small businesses and local businesses and the schools that are going to need it the most. And then the state can take that guidance and make it make sense for their respective communities. Right? So what we needed in Oakland isn't going to be the same as say what they need in Humboldt County, which is more rural. So it doesn't make sense to have a flat plan, but the the total absence of even when you're, (laughs) you're leading medical official ad nauseum is, is, giving advice and then you're completely ignoring it like who i'm sorry but but it it, it's it's embarrassing and it's absurd and 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 what i just heard right Mm -hmm. from from the young people um is a reflection of that even when schools were trying to step up there was still so much uncertainty and this unwillingness amongst adults to just look at children and tell them the truth. Just tell them, we don't know. And that's okay.
2: That's okay if they say they don't know, right? That's at okay, least the kids don't right? know. So so Dr. Jeff, we have a few more questions. So I wanna be able to get Dr. Dewan to be able to answer that question as well.
4: Thank you. I, I think that when COVID first started, there was a lot we didn't know and we were getting a lot of uh, mixed information from experiences across the globe. And we did try to identify like who would be the credible messengers in this work. And I, I think it ties back to some of the things that we were talking about earlier is that we have to be critical um, in our analysis and our judgment of um, who is sending the message and you know who can we trust to know what is the right thing to do to keep us safe. And so I think we've learned a lot in the last number of months. And in some ways um, it, it can be empowering to us um, as educators, and I think to children, and youth to know that there are some very simple things that we can do to stay safe and healthy with COVID-19. Wear a face covering, wash your hands a lot, social distancing, and don't take unnecessary risks just because you're around people that you know. So what we're seeing in in terms of a lot of these outbreaks, it's happening because we are with our neighbor or friend that we haven't seen in a while. It's somebody we know, so we are maybe less concerned about having our mask off or less concerned about getting too close to that that person. And so we let our guard down and that creates opportunity for COVID-19. So I I hope that we can um, gain some sense of control around what it is we do know and use that in our own homes, our own neighborhoods and our communities to try to keep each other safe. And thank you. Sorry, I just really wanna quickly add
0: um, that You know, wearing a mask is definitely one of the basic ways. And, you know, when my school was closing, I knew the day of that. Okay, so like last period of the day, our assistant principal comes in and tells us, "Okay, like you're going to go on a three week vacation. You're going to come back and COVID-19 is going to be settled. And basically, when we were asking questions, we were able to ask five questions. The assistant principal left. And, you know, everyone's kind of like freaking out, like what's happening? You know, what's going on? And we were just told, okay, we're going to go home that day. We're going to be gone for three weeks. We're going to come back. And our teachers basically were telling us, okay, don't worry about this right now. Let's finish our lesson. Let's make the most of the time we have in the rest of our class. And we weren't allowed to process. And just after that, one month goes by. Okay, we're opening up May 1st. Mm -hmm. Another month goes by. Okay, we're basically just going to close up for the rest of the year. Next thing you know, the school year is starting online. And, you know, I think it makes us as youth very um, worrisome, knowing that the adults also don't know. And we're looking to them and the adults don't know. And they're looking to health professionals and they don't know. And we're all getting mixed signals. And it's just kind of like a mess. All
2: right. So so listen to this. And, and I, I hear what you're saying. Um, Got to get us to tr- transition in the next eight minutes. And we have a a boatload of questions. You guys are all superstars and the world wants to talk to you right now. Um, So I want to go ahead and take this uh, question from Mark, who directs this question to Vivova and Victoria. What are your feelings about the decisions that are being made around online learning? Are your school administrators hearing your voice? Do they hear your voice?
3: Um, I think I'm going to start, if that's okay with you, for this one. Um, I think that my school uh, is hearing our voice. We are able to speak up. Um, Over the summer, my school was very active with the Black Lives Matter movement, the Me Too movement, and a lot of other things. And I heard that other schools just weren't having that. And so for online learning and COVID-19, I think my school is very active in telling us what the plan was. And was always sending us emails, giving us updates so that we would always be on track with everything. Mm -hmm. But it really disappoints me to see that other people in other schools were completely confused because they weren't receiving those updates. They weren't being told what was going to happen. And so I'm very thankful to go to the school that I go to, but I just wish that I could help their surrounding schools.
2: Now, are these schools that are also in your county?
3: They are in this Bay Area. In
2: the Bay Area? In the Bay
3: Area, Silicon Valley. (laughs) And so just to answer that question, um, so
0: the online learning experience so far um, has been really good because the teachers are being more flexible and understanding of what a student has to go through daily life, you know. And I feel like in real life school, they did not have that same understanding or empathy towards students and were kind of, you know, telling students that school was something you had to focus on and kind of ignore the rest of your life when you're at school for six hours and when you come back, you continue doing whatever is told and so on and so forth. So um, my school, I definitely say it's a little mixed. I definitely got a lot of announcements and information and all of that, which was great. But I think that this is definitely not, of course, subjective to my school or my district. I think this is something that all of the schools have to kind of take into consideration is the way the curriculum is going to be handed out to students. That was something that was a little, um, the way it was handled wasn't the best. So we had to pick up textbooks from the school and I was waiting, you know, for an hour and a half, I want to say, for two textbooks. And I thought that was kind of insane. And, you know, the social distancing while we were waiting, the line definitely wasn't marked off, you know, six feet and we weren't informed as well as I'd hoped to kind of handle that situation. And some of my friends had to wait two and a half hours just to get one textbook. And some of the textbooks ran out and stuff like that. So the way the curriculum was kind of handed out could have been done better.
2: Okay. My next question is going to be from uh, KQED Education, who is joining us here today. KQED Education, thank you for being here. So this question is, do you feel that your school curriculum reflects your lived experiences in your community? If not, what do you wish the adults in your school to understand about your culture?
0: All right, so I definitely want to say that that's a topic that is, you know, a little bit um, that I can personally relate to, just community and how the curriculum is um, affected by, you know, where you are geographically and what you learn about based on that. And I want to say that our curriculum is very questionable in the way that some of what is written in a textbook is not what's actually true. Now, as my experiences as an Indian American, the curriculum that was written about my culture and my ethnicity and kind of all of the information based on that, and it was incorrect. So the textbook was incorrect. And some of my community members, Indian Americans went and, you know, contacted um, the California government about it. And we were able to get that fixed. However, the way it was taught was we didn't have a textbook to teach from about Indian Americans. And the amount of information that was presented was very little. And it was definitely not organized in that way. So we kind of just need to work on making sure that we have representation of each culture in every textbook and make sure that we have a better way of displaying that out.
2: Thank you. Let's make that an action item put down a chalkboard. We're going to make that an action item. Victoria, go ahead.
3: Um, I totally relate to you. Um, As an Asian and African American, I tend to also want to hear more about my culture at my school, want the people around me to know about it, you know? And so not being able to have that in the curriculum regularly is really difficult sometimes. And so I have to go and learn about my own culture on my own, which I really enjoy doing. But at the same time, I wish I could share that with my peers. And um, one thing that I've realized when I was younger, after um, elementary school and middle school, my dad would bring up an African-American that was very strong in the community. And I wouldn't know who it was because they didn't teach it in our schools. And so I'm happy that it's starting to slowly be incorporated more as I'm in high school, but I just wish there could be more representation of it. And that's why I think ethnic studies is so important as well. And I'm hoping that not only that will be a course separately, but I hope that it can also be incorporated in regular curriculum as well so that more people can learn about many different cultures and ethnicities.
0: Definitely, yeah.
4: Thank you. I would just love to add a perspective that the textbook shouldn't be driving our curriculum and, that, and what we learn doesn't have to be limited to what's in that book. Um, right, so I Dr.
2: Dr. That, Dr. Yeah. Dr. Juan, can I, can I, I want to flip the question to you. Oh,
4: sure. Okay, it's please. the same
2: question. I'm just going to flip it a little bit and this is for both okay. of you, you too, Dr. Jeff. Do you feel that the curriculum that's within the schools that you serve reflects the lived experiences of the youth in the community? And if not, uh, what do you wish your schools in your communities understand about the culture that they're serving?
4: I think historically, our curriculums have been really anchored in um, kind of structured sets of um, studies around historical figures and, you know, the past, which is not reflective of our individual communities and our young persons' uh, lived experiences. But there's been a a total revitalization and uh, energy around changing that. Um, with things like ethnic studies and civics in action and uh, thinking about the curriculum is much bigger than textbooks and so I think continuing those types of efforts and expanding the resources that are available, whether that's literature realia field trips. Um, uh, you know, conversations with um, historical um, figures and community leaders and others in our community. I think those kinds of interviews, um, all kinds of experiences can contribute to the curriculum and expand that in a way that allows young people to see perspective in their own lived experience.
2: Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Dr. Jeff, to me Yeah, I, I, I just want to acknowledge
1: first that the young people's responses, I mean, they were spot on. So just like ditto, you know, cut, copy, like, let's get to that. I love the fact that y'all, when you found the error, that you just didn't bury it and sit on it and eat it, that you, that you moved on it, Um, that y'all give me hope that, that we, you know, that, that, that there's, things are going to change. You know, the answer to your question, no, (laughs) absolutely not. Um, and, and I guess what I would add to what um, Dr. Dewan just said is is that I, I just want the broader society to be clear that curriculum is not going to save us, right? Like, I, I don't care if we, you know, get get an ethnic studies curriculum if we're not paying attention to the pedagogy and the purpose. So it's not just about having more authors of color, right, you know, uh, community stories in the curriculum. The, the question that I think we have to wrestle with in the field and as a nation is for What? Why are we having these conversations? And if the intentionality is is about some of the things we've been talking about here, which is critical civic engagement, right? And transformation around the radicalized inequalities that we're experiencing in the society, then sign me up. But if it's just checking off a box that oh yeah we have ethnic studies and you know we have you know a, a, a culturally diverse curriculum, I'm not interested in that because we've played that game and it hasn't transformed the experiences of the ones who most need to experience transformation in our schools.
2: Just wow, thank
1: could you.
3: Could I could I quickly add on to that?
2: We got we have one more question.
3: It'll be really quick. Go ahead. <laughs> um, just to add on to that, in my AP US History class, I was the only African American student in that class. And it was very awkward at times when they would bring up things about slavery or anything pertaining to African-American culture. And a lot of times I wouldn't want to fight back with them because they would continue to try to debunk my feelings or how I feel about my own culture and tell me that I'm wrong. And so I think that's where I kind of feel alone in my school, and I wish that more people could belong in their school. And that's why I asked Dr. Jeff the question earlier about how you can feel more comfortable in the place that you're put in.
2: Definitely Thank you. agree with that. So Dr. Jeff, you got one minute to answer this question. It's going to be kind of deep. Put your seatbelt on. <laughs> this message, uh, this question is for Dr. Jeff. Okay. How do, you fi- how do you see equity in virtual learning with your zip code being a part of your culture? In one minute. All right,
1: speed round. I Um, told
2: Bettina I was going to ask the question.
1: (laughs) Yeah, uh, email me.
2: (laughs) It would be my response.
1: (laughs) Um, Look, you know, all of the inequities that we're experiencing um, as and have historically experienced as a society are exacerbated right now, right? I mean, that's what happens when you're in crisis. Is that when when the nation is in crisis, the people who have been in crisis are in even greater crisis. And so I think that the only way that we're going to have equity, you know, the definition of equity that that I like to use is is that you get what you need when you need it. And if we're going to do that, then schools have got to center their response strategy to the most vulnerable students first. They've got to be figuring out how are we going to support the most disconnected youth and families first, and then we can start building out from there.
2: Thank you very much. Oh, you did pretty good. Thank you, Dr. Jeff. So um, my last question for you, doctor. All right. And this is also from Bettina. How are we in Santa, in the Santa Clara County Office of Education? Um, that's who you represent. So how are we or how are you serving students who do not have the same opportunity for learning in this uh, COVID-19 time? But uh,
4: there are many things that we're doing um... One is to try to close that digital divide and doing exactly what um, Dr. Jeff said earlier about ensuring that those resources are going to our most vulnerable families first. Um, I think additionally, um, finding these ways to um, leverage community partnerships, our work with cities and county um, and not putting it all on the school to solve, you know, to solve all those problems and, and challenges. And so, um, there are so many partnerships that have been emerging and ways in which um, our families and communities are being served as a result of our collaboration and coordination.
2: All right. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Dewan, Dr. Jeff. We want to thank you for being here. The kids will have the final words. So do you want to uh, provide us with your final thoughts, Dr. Jeff?
1: I- I'm just grateful. Uh, I'm grateful to have been you know, a participant in this um, I'm grateful for the you know community participation around the questions and'm I'm, I'm especially grateful for um, the two sisters that are sitting on the stage right now and just you know the courage that it takes to 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 be up there doing what you're doing, but also the ways in which you you spoke some truths today that I, I really hope ripple, and that um, the adults that are listening um, you know I, I really hope that that this sets off something where we are much more intentional about asking. And listening to how it is that young people are experiencing the things that we're putting together for them in school, and that we become responsive to what it is that they say, that those comments that they made today, let them please, I, I hope your, ed, your, your, your school leaders were listening, and that they don't let those lay dead in this space, but they actually move on the things that you shared, That
2: that would make all this worth it to me. Yeah. Thank you, Dr. Jeff. Thank you. And Dr. Dewan, last word.
4: Thank you. So honored to have been here with you in this space and so proud of the, the young leaders on the stage who have brought us um, through this discussion this evening in, in such an eloquent and inspiring way. I'm leaving tonight very inspired um, and re-energized for the hard work that's ahead of us. I just want to say that you know words become actions and creating space for that dialogue, lifting up your experience um, into these words, I truly believe leads to action. So congratulations on a terrific event. Thanks for having me.
2: And so what I want the the young lady to be able to think and thank you, Dr. Dewan, is um, I want you to come up with your call to action.
3: So uh, along with some discussions that we were able to have about the various issues that we wanted to address today, uh, we created a list of changes that us youth hope for in schools. And so I'm going to have Vibeva read the first two. All right. so something that we feel is very important, especially during this time, but also
0: when school, you know, when school starts in real life is mental health awareness and support at schools that is easily accessible for students. So that means easy access to college counselors and school counselors and that's something that people are struggling with right now in COVID-19 and we hope that that's an issue that can be fixed. The second one is educating students about the inequalities in the world, not just about the United States, but neighboring countries and countries all around the world.
3: Yes. And the third one that we have is teaching students more about various cultures and ethnicities. And I know that we talked a lot about that tonight. And so I find that very important. And then we have active administrators at schools addressing current issues happening inside or outside of school. And so Um, I'm very grateful that at my school they do address these things, and so I'm hoping that other schools will follow that example and address these issues and host events, send emails so that students know that they're supported and so that students know that the administrators at the school care. And then finally, giving students more opportunities to create change at schools and speak up about their views with the adults at the schools.
2: So that's awesome. We're kind of out of time. (laughs) Um, I know the kids had had more on their on their list so our call to action is to be able to do an event like this again where we can include these calls um calls of action so thank you very much both of you
3: thank you so much thank you so much for being thank here you. it was a time. pleasure
0: congratulations
2: <laughs> all right commonwealth club thank you
0: thank you thank, thank so you all <laughs> for this opportunity to speak um we are so glad to discuss these issues with you guys and have an engaging
1: conversation